worship team, Three Roses and Dale. Now I'm not going to say a, I'm not going to say a thorn. Uh, I'm excited to see a TBF's missionary to the wind turbine community today, David Bearden. Yeah, they're making him work eight days a week, so he didn't uh, have much off time anymore. But uh, those things are like 300 feet high, and he's up and down those things all day long, every day. So when you pass one, pray for our man David. It's, it's not easy to work in those things. Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 5. We finally made it to the final chapter, so we can see the finish line of this book. And let me read it to you from the New American Standard Bible, verses 1 through 4, chapter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Several years ago in an what I would say an infamous article in the Washington Post on the topic of voting patterns, the writer said that evangelical Christians, and I quote, are backward, uneducated, and easily led. Now, my basic reaction to that then and now is it's just wrong. It's just not factually correct. I mean, most of us aren't backward if you apply any kind of legitimate metric to define that term. Most of us ain't uneducated, or at least most of us have gotten through the middle school part of the educational process. And uh, as a church leader and pastor for 29 years here at TBF and six and a half years in Shreveport Fellowship Bible Church, I can flat promise you most evangelical Christians are not easily led. (laughs) Um, but that's what the washington post says about us Um, much more important is what the word of god says about us and i think it basically says that evangelical christians even in the midst of crisis should be positive and plugged into a local church they should be cultural leaders as spiritual salt and light and easily led they should be easily led as long as the leaders are legitimate And we're going to see that this morning in a passage that addresses elders in the church. So we're thinking about uh, Homer and and Ron and Dale and David and me. But it really, Natalie, applies to everybody in the church for reasons we'll we'll show you. So let's pray for teachability. And as we always like to, let's pray for those in our active military that defend our right to uh, enjoy freedom of uh, speech, freedom of religion. Uh, our peace officers and also our firefighters. Okay, and Anthony has taken uh, a couple hours out of the final editing process of the uh, blockbuster film from Pueblo to from Duncan to Puebla, which will premiere this Wednesday. But uh, if you've got any energy left, I'm going to ask you to pray for us uh, for teachability and for the people that protect us. Again, Amen. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate that. Um, you know, in our attempt to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, I want to show you uh, an even more famous passage and think about it for a moment than uh, 1 Peter 5. I'm thinking of 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And so I give you uh, top seven things that crossed Goliath's mind just before David loaded his, swing, his sling shot, not his swing shot. Number seven, Donald Trump would have a better chance against Hillary Clinton than this guy has against me. That's the first thing he thought. The Philistine powerhouse versus the Semitic shrimp. My agent will never be able to sell this thing to HBO. That's what went through his mind. I didn't say these were necessarily funny, uh, nor an exhaustive list of all the things that went through his mind, but they're just a representative list. Number five. It's funny, but for a shepherd, this kid doesn't sweat much. I really thought that was going to fly there. Uh, 
After I put this midget in his place, I'm going to Disney World. I wonder why he is running toward me and not away from me. (laughs) It's sad, but this whole thing will take about three seconds and then nobody will even remember it ever happened. And hold your applause. This is the last one. The number one thing going through his mind was, hey, kid, put that rock down before someone gets hurt. (laughs) Okay, in our passage this morning, we're going to see challenge and encouragement for leaders in the local church and for everyone else in the local church. Lori, this applies to you as much as to Homer in a very real sense. It applies as much to uh, the folks in the back row. Uh, that are always uh, very attentive as much as to David Demerson or to Dale Corbin. And, uh, you know, when we talk about everybody else in the local church, I always think of the, of the church as kind of uh, three concentric circles. Uh, you've got kind of your committed folks in the middle, and you've got the convinced people in, is that reddish? Uh, you know, they're convinced it's a good church, but they're still kind of maybe pick and choose some of the stuff they get excited about. And then the folks on the fringes are, are what I'm calling the casual, you know. And now some people would say uh, folks in the middle there uh, make things happen, and the folks uh, in the red watch things happen, and the folks in the blue wonder, what's happening, you know. But I've always said, and the old saying is 10% of the people do 90% of the work in local churches, but I've always felt like TBFs, core has always been a much bigger percentage of that. But to me, I feel like the elder's job ultimately and the pastor's job is to try to do uh, everything you can do to produce an environment where that core gets bigger because people are being fed and we're setting an example and we're giving them things that can help them grow spiritually so they become uh, more committed to the Lord and to the local church. So this doesn't just apply to elders, deacons, and their families, but um, it does target elders to receive some encouragement and exhortation here. We've got four verses that break down into three parts. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, we're told that elders are to serve well now. This isn't about being a dictator or getting your way or getting your wife's agenda through or getting your teenager's agenda through. It's about something much bigger than that. And uh, real spiritual leaders actually give a lot more than anybody else, and they make more uh, sacrifices than anybody else. Uh, that's the first three verses. And then in verse 4, we're going to see that elders who serve well now in the local church will receive special commendation, special reward from the Lord of the church. Okay, So let's look at verse 1 again. We're going to see the teacher identified, as we're being told, that elders in the local church should serve it well. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, and Peter refers to himself as your fellow elder. He's an elder in the church there in Rome, where he's writing from. And I'm not just your average elder. He's not pulling rank. He's just reminding you of his experience. I'm a witness, both an eyewitness, and I've been a verbal witness about the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also the glory that is to be revealed. Now, I know Carol knows this. She's already referred to this, and Blanche knows this. But anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, look back to see what it's there for. And he's referring back to the immediate context, which starts in verse 12 of chapter 4. So David, he didn't just start a dissertation on, on elders in the middle of nowhere. He's talking about the need for Christians to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to do that because the pieces don't seem to fit based on the number of pieces you're able to coordinate in your own mind. But God can see all the pieces. So let's remind ourselves of the intense uh, background and context of this entire book, really. But you see it kind of summed up very nicely starting in 4.12. Beloved, Fellow believers, these are believers. He's, he's not concerned about their saving faith. He's concerned about them staying faithful under fire. Beloved, do not be surprised. Don't give the enemy the element of surprise, man. As, as depraved as people and the world are, according to Scripture, I'm surprised so much good stuff happens in this world. I'm, I'm not surprised personally by any of the depravity out there because surprise is not even worse, actually. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing 
as though some strange thing, something outside of the purpose and plan of God were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, sufferings because you're associated with Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now, Christ on the cross for the joy set before him, joy is not ecstatic happiness. It has a range from stability to ecstatics based on your circumstances and your personality bent. But Jesus is not ecstatically happy about being crucified, but he has a stability that allows him to stay centered on his purpose. And that's what we're supposed to do too. So even in the midst of unfair, unexpected suffering, keep on rejoicing. Jesus says rejoice when you're persecuted because somebody actually noticed you're a Christian so that the more painful the battle, the sweeter the victory at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with special levels of exaltation, appreciation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're actually blessed because somebody actually noticed you're different. The spirit of God, spirit of the, the glorious God rests on you enough that somebody's noticed you're different. But make sure you avoid bad suffering. What's bad suffering? Anybody remember? That's when you suffer for doing bad stuff. Okay. This book's basically about good suffering. You're doing the good things and people and the world cause you to suffer anyway. And that happens. There's also inevitable suffering. What's that? Aging and losing your good looks, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I tried to tell Anthony, you know, nobody wants to watch me play myself in this movie. They want to see Tom Cruise play me. But, you know, he was busy. You know, he had to go to a Scientology convention or something. So, you know, he's got his priorities, right? But if anyone suffers, he says, but make sure, verse 15, none of you are suffering because of bad things you've done as a murderer, if not physically, at least character assassination, or a thief, or an evildoer, or even a troublesome meddler. But if any one of you suffers as a Christian because you're a Christian, in spite of the fact you're doing the right thing and right things, don't be ashamed. Don't be disappointed with God or the program. It's, it fits into his program. But that person is to glorify God in his name and keep on doing what you've been doing. Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. For it's time for testing to begin with the household of God now, the world will judge us now, as it were. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not believe, obey the call to believe the gospel? The world kind of judges us now. The Lord of the church is going to judge the world in the end. And if it's with difficulty, it's not easy to get through life unscathed. In fact, we all suffer scars, don't we? If it's with difficulty that we move through this life until we get to heaven, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's not going to be pretty. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, doing the right thing and suffering anyway, entrust your suke, your entire life and being, to a faithful creator who's going to be the consummator at the end of it in doing what's right. Therefore, because I know you're suffering and I know you're still plugged into a good local church, he's assuming that suffering doesn't give you a pass from being plugged into your local church. You know, uh, Why is he talking to elders in the church? Because they're trying to set up a program that will be a benefit to all the folks that are involved in that body, especially those who are suffering, which is most of them. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. And that word presbyteros literally means old man. But it also is used just for somebody with authority, just like a 40-year-old naval uh, captain might be in charge of a destroyer, and all the uh, the men on the ship will call him the old man, including the sergeant major, uh, who's actually 60 and nearing retirement, but he'll call the captain who's younger the old man, meaning the person with authority. So we're talking about people with authority, and they have authority to oversee the entire function of the local church. Therefore, I exhort the elders in the churches, and he's writing to a bunch of little churches all over the country of Turkey today, we'd call it, as your fellow elder, the humility there. He's saying, I, I'm an elder too. I know what it's like to uh, try to, you know, uh, Heard the cats of Christians, where they all go in different directions, and they're all doing craziness. Uh, but also, and by the way, hold your place there, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, we all know this, but don't forget, the human, human author of this book, Peter, inspired by the Spirit, is an apostle. And to me, uh, the very first statement's in the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing this to those who reside as par epidemois, uh, refugees, aliens because of their faith, had to leave their homes and their cultures. But notice, Peter is kind of pulling rank and just reminding them they're an apostle. 
For me, when I translate that, I always make it capital A because it's a proper noun. Okay, uh, an apostle is like a five-star general, Chris. I mean, the apostles were over the entire church. They they oversaw the entire capital C church, whereas elders, as under shepherds under Christ, are overseers and leaders in local churches, individual local churches. So don't forget, uh, he could pull rank again here. Go back to chapter five. But he's in the trenches with them, and he's commiserating with them, and he's about to be martyred himself in Rome. So he knows he's willing to pay the same price he's asking them uh, to pay. But I exhort you as your fellow elder, and he's a witness. That word for witness can mean to be an eyewitness of something or somebody who verbally gives testimony, like somebody on a witness stand will give, uh, the witness will talk about the crime that he saw or she saw, right? Uh, this word can mean either one of those, and here it means both. But here's the, and you've heard better preachers than me tell you this, but the Greek word for witness, the New Testament Greek word for witness is martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, when you uh, um, write that in English letters, martus. I wonder what English word we get from martus, martyr, uh, being a witness, especially a, a vocal witness for Christ uh, uh, would line you up for martyrdom, which is why that uh, that word, you know, is associated with that. So I'm a witness of the sufferings and the glories, and of all, not just saw it all, but also I'm telling you about it. But let's see what he says about that. Look at 2 Peter. You got 1 Peter, 2 Peter. You know, Paul's letters are labeled, are the name for the recipient. So Ephesians is the one of the 13 letters Paul wrote, and it was written to the Ephesian Christians. Second Timothy is the second of two letters Paul wrote to Timothy, the pastor at Ephesus. But the other epistles, the other letters, are labeled just by convention by their human author. So James wrote James, or Second John's the second of three letters John wrote. First Peter, Second Peter are the two inspired letters that Peter wrote. Look at Second Peter 1.13, and let's see him refer to uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, as it were. His, he's reminding them that he's actually seen these events that they're believing in. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, and he knows his days are dwindling, uh, to stir up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, physical death, is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me back in John 21. He said that Peter would be bound and taken to a place he didn't want to go and executed. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, when I'm gone, the truth goes on, the gospel goes on, the church goes on, uh, that you'll be able to call these things to mind. And, uh, you know, I've been here 29 years, and I'm not sure how much longer I'll be here, but the fraction, however much longer it is, is going to be a small fraction of what I've already done. And you start thinking, what are some things you really wanted to remember when you can't do it anymore, don't do it anymore? Uh, or whatever. Maybe after this film, maybe I'll get to go to Hollywood and become a big movie star or something. Who knows? And if, if not that, I want to be either a sumo wrestler or an NBA center. So any of those, those things are wide open. You know, there's, they have a need for that and they pay those people a lot of money. But I want to be diligent in reminding you this so that when I'm gone, you're going to remember the truth. Now watch this. This is so important. Look at this, Michael. For we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And, uh, you know, Peter was there at the very beginning, and back in John 1, you know, his uh, his brother Andrew meets Jesus, and he's convinced he's the Messiah. So he says, i got to go get my brother Peter and introduce him to Jesus. And when, and by the way, Peter's name isn't Peter. That's a nickname. His name's Simon, which means listener. And in John 1, when Andrew kind of brings Jesus and Peter together, our Lord, with a big smile on his face, says, they call you Simon? They call you listener? They call you listener? He said, we're going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you Rocky, big boy, which is what Peter means. So he's thinking about all that. But he's thinking particularly of one event. What's the one event that only Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the 12, experienced where Jesus' deity was undeniably expressed the transfiguration and that's what he's referring to here we were eyewitnesses of his majesty that is me 
James and John were. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory of God. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17. Don't turn there now, but turn there later. That's that's at the transfiguration. Uh, and he says, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So go back to 1 Peter 5. 1. There's a lot going on here. And this is a spiritual VIP, a five-star general, uh, exhorting these elders. And because elders set the pace for everybody else, all of us... Uh, to, to serve the Lord in our church in particular ways that would glorify Him. You've got to do the right thing the right way for the right reasons. Now, let's say a couple of things about elders in the local church. We've got a principal, uh, a position. I want to say something about the pastor and then a final principle. Principle one, uh, elders in the church. It's always plural. Uh, Book of Acts, 11.30, 14.23, 15.2, 15.4. Write these down. 15.6, 15.20. No, I'm kidding. 1522, 1523, 1614, 2017, 2118. In Acts uh, 20, verse 17, Paul calls for the elders of the church. In James 5, we're told to call on the elders of the church. You've always got a plurality of godly men. You don't have one guy who's the pope over the local church. You always have a group of godly men. Very important. Always plural. It's... Uh, um, a group of godly men, G-men. They used to call the uh, FBI G-men because they were government men. Remember that? Uh, none, and, and that means no one person has veto power. And to me, that's very important. You know, you know me, you love me, you don't want me having veto power over everything that happens here because some of the stuff that happens here, I don't understand. But it needs to happen anyway. So it's not my preferences or Homer's preferences or Dale's preferences or David's preferences or Ron's preferences that rule. It's the collective wisdom of that group as we hopefully seek to uh, submit to the will of God. So that's the first principle. The position, and I really, let me change my wording from your notes there. One role, one job, you might say, with two aspects, okay? And you see this in the terminology. The word presbyteros, we get Presbyterian from that, means old man speaks to these people's authority, they outrank everybody else in the church. When push comes to shove, they make decisions for the church overall. And the second word that's used is episkopos. We get the term episcopalian from that. And episkopos just literally means an overseer, somebody who oversees. So we've got two Greek words for one role in the church that's fulfilled by multiple people, not just one person uh, at a time. Uh, and uh, those terms are actually used interchangeably for the same office in Titus 1. It's very clear when you look at that. Now, let's say something about the pastor and the elder uh, role. Uh, and not all Christians, uh, denominations hold this, but I think biblically, based on the data we've said already, uh, the pastor of the church should normally be an elder. There might be some extenuating, extenuating circumstances where that's not possible and still be legit. But for sure, the character qualities listed for uh, the elders, which are an ideal for any believer in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, the pastor who's going to be the teaching elder, as it were, from the pulpit, do most of the teaching, uh, that person should meet those qualifications for sure. So normally the pastor will be an elder, but he's not the elder. Okay, Maybe, maybe the most visible, especially as you get further and further out in those circles, he's the, maybe the most visible one. Although it's funny because we have the kids on the going out song. We have whole generations of kids until they get into group, youth group and start coming hopefully the first hour, uh, who think Dale's the pastor. They have no idea who I am. I'm just the geeky guy who wears the suit. But it's, it's Dale. Who's, he's making announcements. They see him, so they think he's the pastor. It's kind of like uh, Debbie is the financial clerk at Horace Mann since 2000. And uh, a lot of these kids think she's the principal. Because they see her all the time. So we'll be in Walmart, especially kindergartners and first graders. They'll go, hey, mom, mom, there's my principal. You know, and you can't accept that kind of title. You've got to sit the, the parent down and disclaim it. Otherwise, you know, Vicky's going to hear that Debbie's wanting her job, but she doesn't really want her job. You've got to be careful about stuff like that. Um, yeah, so normally a pastor would be an elder. It would be very unusual if it wasn't true. But he's not the elder. Uh, he may be the most visible one. The New Testament talks about teaching elders. And in fact, First Timothy 
uh, Ron doesn't like this passage, but I do, says, let the elders that teach the word well be considered worthy of double honor. And I'd be talking about the pastor who's an elder, who's the teaching elder. Uh, a final principle is uh, elders should be good examples, setting the pace for everybody else of spiritual maturity and stability, and the character traits listed for them in First Timothy and Titus are described here, the attitudes in First Peter, should characteristic should characterize Stan and Jenny and and Natalie and Sue and uh, Sharon and Steve, even though none of them technically are elders, you know. So rather than reading this like it's a whole separate thing, this is and none of us. I heard somebody really good recently. R.C. Sproul. I was watching R.C. Sproul, pretty famous Bible teacher, and he was going through the characteristics for an elder in First Timothy, and he said, at first flush, when you read this, you think. There's no way I could qualify. You know, if you think you qualify, you're probably a self-righteous jerk. And he said, you, you always need to have a little bit of humility saying, you know, that's what I'm aiming for, and hopefully I'm able to live that fairly consistently. You're not a new neophyte believer. You're stable. You've been through some things and not denied the faith and not, you know, doubt, hadn't dropped out it yet. Uh, but ultimately, um, we're just serving the Lord Jesus here. We're not uh, trying to set up our own kingdom. So that's the teacher Peter identifying himself and kind of getting you oriented to what he's going to do now. In verses 2 and 3, he's going to uh, instruct the elders and by application all of us. And he's going to say three things, basically. Elders in the church, and really all of us in the church, Linda as much as Olga as much as Brad, should serve the church willingly. We should serve the church givingly and serve the church servingly. I'm not sure if those are actually words or not, but they fit well and I think they communicate Look at verse 2, first, most of the verse 2. Uh, elders, and by extension, application, everybody else, Michael and Amanda, shepherd the, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And here's what applies to everybody. Not under compulsion. You shouldn't be coming to church because your wife drags you or your teenager drags you or something like that. You know, you've heard the long story about the guy who wakes up on Sunday, he doesn't want to go to church. And the, the, it doesn't get out of bed, and the wife says, "Hey, honey, you got to get dressed. You got to go to church. I don't want to go to church." And she says, "You got to go to church. Why? Why do I have to go to church?" Well, uh, let me give you a couple of reasons. You know, it's good for you spiritually, and uh, I think the folks are depending on you to do some things there today. Plus, you're the pastor of the church. You got to go. I mean, whether you want to or not, you know, that's the old joke. But for me, uh, every Sunday, Super Sunday for me. I, lo- I love Sunday, man. I wish we had Sunday every day, but. Uh, uh, not really, but I mean, Sundays are still pretty good. I, I like Sundays. Uh, not under compulsion. That reminds me of another passage. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6. And sometimes people say, how do you people get your money around here? You never pass an offering plate, and uh, you don't talk about money very much. And I say, well, I'm independently wealthy, and I just finance the whole thing. But that's, I shouldn't lie like that. No, that's not really true. Um now, actually, uh, we apply this principle, Second, Second uh, Corinthians six. Second, did I say six? I want nine. Second Corinthians nine. I was going to say six is not what I want there. But uh, and and your average Baptist blows their minds. But we're not under a tithing system in the New Testament. Tithing was to New to Old Testament Israel nationally. The believers and the unbelievers were supposed to give ten percent in the spring. 10% in the fall, and every third year is another, t- every third year, another 10%, which adds up to 23.33%. So if you want to tithe, you can, but you need to give us 23.33%. But you're not under a tithing system. We're under a grace system where you give, as he says here, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now I'll say this, and it is important that you invest in your local church. He was so sparingly will reap sparingly. The more you put in, the less you put in, the less you're going to get out. He who sows bountifully will also sow bountifully. But here's the heart of it. Each one of you should give a tithe. Each one of you should give 23.33% on the overall average. He didn't say that. Each one of you should do just as he's purposed in his or her heart. You kind of decide what you want to give. And uh, as Jimmy Swigert once said, and I saw him do this when they were really desperate, he said, I want you to give the most generous gift you can give and then double it. And I went, ow, okay. I don't remember reading that one. But uh, everyone should give as he's purposed in his or her heart, 
not grudgingly or under compulsion. We're not going to put you under a lot of false guilt or make you sign a card or fill out a promise. For God loves a cheerful giver, right? And and by the way, you can't outgive God. God's able to make all grace abound to you no matter how much you give. You're going to be have enough to do what you need to do so that always having all sufficiency, everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Go back. So I talked about money. I've, it's been eight years since I've talked about money from the pulpit. So we talked about money. And Steve's saying, stop. It's too convicting, right? Uh, but I will say, you know, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive. And it's just a, it's a lot of joy in being a generous person, not just what, what you put in the box there, but uh, just generally. You can live like this, or you can live like this. And this is the way Jesus lives. And just a, it's a lot of fun in just being generous. I mean, be, be more gracious to people than they deserve, and sometimes you got to draw some lines, but not that often. So we're supposed to... Uh, as elders, lead and oversee the church willingly, like we get to, we want to, and put positive energy in there, and not have a grim, grim resignation, uh, or kind of like it's some horrible, awful chore that we have to do. And that's the way you should come to church. Anybody should have that attitude toward their church, I think. Uh, secondly, look at the second part of verse 2. Uh, elders should lead and oversee givingly. Uh, they shouldn't seek the office, serve in the office for sordid gain. And that means uh, some kind of stinky financial gain, not just not just generic, but some kind of tainted financial gain. But with eagerness, they might say, oh, my goodness, you know, elders are to lead and oversee givingly. And certainly not, they're not supposed to be embezzling money or, you know, taking money that was given for something and putting it in their wallet or something. But uh, they ought to be serving to give, not to get kind of thing. But that leads to the obvious question, so why do James and Brad get a paycheck from TBF? Well, that's a very incisive question, one that I find very interesting. And uh, I would say, because of stuff like this, in the Old Testament, the priests and the Levites were paid from the tithe that was mandated. Uh, and they were also encouraged to have real big families, which meant they got extra supplement to cover for their family. But 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? you, you know, I've invested enough in, in the current church, Paul said. You ought to be financially helping me here, even though he's willing to work and make tents if he needed to. And then the one I like is Galatians 6.6. 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things, including material things, with the one who teaches so I don't think that's a big conflict here, but I bumped into some people who get into this home church where it's just them, daddy's the elder, mommy does whatever daddy says, and the kids just say, uh-huh. And uh, they'll say, see, we're, 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 not, we're pure compared to those other churches with buildings because we don't get paid. Well, I think that's kind of, there's a thing called, uh, what is it, uh, when you, what is that dynamic when you're just in a small group, groupthink? I think groupthink takes, takes, uh, uh, Priority in that kind of situation, it can become very, very uh, sloppy. Now, if you're in Saudi Arabia and it's against the law for you to have any kind of Christian structure, uh, and it's just you and the kids, you probably have to have a home church. But in, in general, there were 70 churches when I got here 30 years ago. Now there's 170. If you're a left-handed bowler, there's a church for you. Find one and make it better. Find a good one, make it better. If this isn't the right one, go find another one, make it better. Um, and that's not approved by the elders. That's just my opinion, by the way. Uh, willingly, givingly, and servingly. Verse 3. Elders, as team captains and good examples, uh, are not to hold that role and serve in that uh, function as lording it over those allotted to your charge as dictators. And my way or the highway and my preferences are going to be mandated uh, and... Uh, the, it takes a ter- two-third vote of the elder board to overrule the word of God, uh, the will of God around here. I mean, that's not the way it works. Ideally, I'm sure that has happened somewhere, but proving to be examples of the flock, uh, servingly, not as as dictators, but as servant leaders. My my favorite example, in addition to the cross of Jesus as servant leader, go to John 13, and I know I refer to this a lot, but I just love this so much. I think it's so important. Uh, John 13, this is the upper room just before we go to Gethsemane and we are, where Jesus is arrested and thrown down into that holding tank that we saw at the house of Caiaphas. You can actually see the holding tank he was in in Jerusalem. Uh, and the story goes on from there. But 
Let me just do a quick reading of this. Look at verse uh, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had gone come forth from God and was going back to God the Father, got up from the Passover supper, laid aside his garments, and did the slave's job. Taking a, a towel, he girded himself, then he poured water into the basin, he began to wash the disciples' dirty feet, and to wipe them with the towel, dry them off, in other words. So he came to Simon Peter, okay, listener Rocky, okay, that's his full, his name and his nickname. And he said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. That's a slave's job, okay? I'm not going to let you do that. Humility. Maybe false humility, but I think he's sincere there. Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you don't really understand, but just trust me. Just go with this, just like everything else. Just go with me. It's all going to work out in the end. And Peter said, no, never will you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no meros, no partnership, no fellowship. You're not saying salvation, but fellowship with me. You're not uh, submitting to my purpose and plan here. And Peter says, okay, you know, if one aspirin is good for me, give me 10 of them. If you washing my feet's good, then give me a bath. Lord, then wash my head and my hands and wash my whole body. You know, that's what he's saying. And Jesus says, no, you guys took a bath at the public bath just before this banquet. Then you walked in your sandals and got your feet dirty. He says, you who have bathed physically, you don't need a bath. You just need me to wash your feet. You're already completely clean. And then he says, all y'all, this is a place where it's really important to have that plural in the Greek. All y'all, Natalie, you've got y'all and all y'all. All y'all is plural. The Greek here says, he says to them, and we've got all 12 apostles in there. Judas hadn't left the room yet. Jesus says, hey, When you're taking a bath, you don't need a bath when you walk to the banquet. You just need your feet cleaned. And he says, and you guys are clean already. All y'all are clean, but not all of you. Now, what does that mean? He's looking at 12 of them saying, all y'all are clean. And he's talking not just the physical bath, but the spiritual bath of salvation here. What are we going to do? Anybody got a commentary? Read the next verse, people. Let's get some real here, you know. For he knew, when he's saying not all of you are clean, not all of you have taken the bath of salvation, as it were. For he knew the one, Judas, who is betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. See, the next verse, Michelle, answers your question for you. So when he washed their feet and taken his uh, taken his garment back up and reclined at the table, he said, you know what I just did for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, did the dirtiest job in the room for you, you guys ought to do the same thing for one another. And elders ought to do, and listen, we got a world-class group of elders here. These guys give more than just about anybody else. They do more than anybody else. A lot of it's under the radar, man. Um, and they're not allowed to brag about it, but I'll brag on them from time to time just so you'll know. I keep an eye on them so you can trust them, okay? I'll keep them honest for you. If I then, Lord, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to take out that dirty diaper on Monday morning if they forget to empty the hamper in the nursery, which sometimes happens, and I just lost my reward for that, but I'm happy to do it when necessary. And I check it every Monday morning, you know. Um, I can always, I don't see well, but I still smell well. So I'm just saying, so you know. Uh, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did for you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, to be blessed, to have fellowship, you got to do them, okay? It's not about head knowledge, it's about actually living it out. Go back to First Peter. So we're saying that elders should serve willingly, givingly, and following the example of Lord, the Lord there, uh, servingly, right? Um, and our, our elder board is, is anything they can do when it's legit and needs to be done, they will fly do it. I've never heard anyone saying, oh, we can't do that, I can't do that. I'm too important to do that. That's not the way they think. Uh, let's look at verse 4. We saw that elders are to serve well and serve as a role model. Now we're told elders who do serve well consistently with the willing, giving, service kind of attitude will receive special reward from the Lord of the church. Wow, love this. Verse 4. And, Homer, you keep doing that. David, you keep doing that. Ron, you keep doing that. Brad, you keep doing that kind of thing. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's not salvation. That's a reward on top of salvation. Uh, verse 4 is an effect of faithful service as elders and believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not salvation by good works or anything like that. Uh, 
Here's some things you should know about crowns. It's interesting. Number one, uh, crowns in the Bible, like medals in the military, are given according to works. I remember at Dallas Seminary, uh, the registrar under the blotter there, under the glass on the desk said, at Dallas Theological Seminary, there was a, a sign that said, uh, salvation is by grace, graduation is by works. You know, uh, salvation is by grace through the work of Christ. Rewards, including certain types of crowns, medals, as it were, letter jackets, are for those who got, actually got between the lines and done some, some good things, right? So uh, that's important to know. And I think they're designed to be an encouragement when we're facing faith under fire, especially. Uh, this is a real basic diagram, but let me uh, not assume you've seen it before. Everything left of this line is talking about salvation, our eternal residence in heaven. And that's what I'm interested in, number one, right? And everyone who trusts Jesus Christ is in the set of those who are going to heaven. Salvation is by grace, unmerited favor, through faith, active, receptive trust, in the work of Christ. Not our work, salvation is of the Lord. So you got the set of the believers, set of the unbelievers. But on the right side of that line, there will be evaluations of unbelievers, levels of punishment, and there will be evaluations of believers and how well we function in our Christian life and the greater faithfulness and fruitfulness, including when we're under fire, the greater level of commendation or reward. And this kind of crown available only to elders uh, is going to be for elders who do the right thing over a long period of time. Uh, for lack of time, I'm just going to show you, but we take more time. We've looked at it before. But 1 Corinthians 3, 14, 15 is the center of a passage of all about rewards. It goes from 3, 1 to 4, 5. But the bottom line is, he says, no one can build in the Christian life a foundation. The only foundation is Jesus Christ. He does the work. We receive him. We have eternal life. But how do you live your life? How do you build on that foundation in your Christian experience as a husband, as a church person, as a neighbor, as an employee, as a father and mother spouse, etc. And it says, if any man, any person's man or woman's work, we're talking about the production in the Christian life, remains after Jesus looks at what you did and why you did it. Remember, good, good works are doing the right thing for the right reasons, right? For the right person. If any person's work, the Christian life experience of their life remains after Christ scrutinizes what you did and why you did it, that person will receive reward. And that word for reward in the original, misthos means a wage. It's something you get paid for because of something you did. Salvation ain't a wage. No way. It's charismata. It's a gift. It's not misthos. Those are, that's a category mistake if you're reading salvation there. Now watch this. This is where contextual Bible study, Carol, just wins the day for you when you get issues like this. So we're talking about people's works are scrutinized by Christ and if they're good, and then for the right reason, they're going to get a misthos. They're going to get a reward. In this case, get a crown for an elder, uh, a letter jacket kind of thing. If any man's work is burned up, doesn't remain, it's burned up by the scrutiny of Christ saying, you did that for the wrong reason or whatever, he shall suffer loss. Now, in context, loss of what? You think so? Yeah, what did you say, Steve? A reward? I think context tells me that, so I know that's what that means, but let's see what the rest of it says. I'm putting a reward. That's me adding that there. But he himself shall be saved. We're not talking about their salvation. We're talking about evaluation, okay? So uh, it's, you know, it's very possible that somebody can serve as an elder or deacon in a church somewhere for 40 years and get very little reward because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're not doing it willingly, uh, givingly, or servingly. Uh, but it's always, you know, Jesus is all about reality. Do the right thing for the right reason as opposed to just be religious so you can impress people, right? So, um, yeah, let me say two more things about crowns and then we'll close. Uh, so crowns are like medals in the military. They're part of the evaluation, the rewards that believers can have based on faithful service. There's actually two different Greek words for crowns, but they're generally just translated crown in English. There's the word diadema, uh, you know, uh, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. A diadem crown is the kind of crown the Queen of England wears. Okay? It's a royal crown. It talks about authority. Okay? The, that's not the word that's used 
in these contexts. The word here in First Peter is not diadema. It's um, I'm drawing a blank on the word. Unfortunately, I wrote it down. I think didn't I? Yeah, Stephanos. I think of Stephen the martyr. A Stephanos crown isn't a metal uh, crown that shows that you're royalty. It was a circle of olive branch that was given at the Isthmian and the Olympic Games to the person that won. They didn't have first, second, third in the Olympic Games in ancient uh, Greece. And we've been to Olympus, haven't we? Uh, There was no participation medals in the early Olympics. And and you may remember this. Nobody else would say this in the pulpit. You remember what they told us? You remember what they wore when they competed? They had a very interesting uniform. You can ask Homer and Pam what they wore when they competed back in the ancient Olympics. They didn't wear anything. But women weren't allowed to go watch. It was just the men watching the guys do the thing. But, uh, yeah, but you've probably seen that olive branch. It's like a circle of olive branch. You put that on their head, and it was a victor's crown. It was for uh, excellence in being the first in the marathon or in the, in the, uh, we were actually in the, uh, uh, theater that was at the very earliest Olympics, which was 669 BC. And it was kind of had a low level of stance. Remember that? We had like, it was like a 200 yard dash kind of a thing. So we actually stood there. We actually took some pictures at the starting line, you know. Uh, so that's pretty fun. But uh, that's what that is. So just realize they're using different terms there. So don't think of the Queen of England when you hear about these crowns. And then the New Testament lists some crowns. I don't think it attempts to give us a comprehensive list. There's probably 179 different crowns Christians can earn. But uh, there's a list like crown of life for those who keep the faith under intense suffering. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some people in this room, and I'm looking at a couple of them over there, who've undergone some stuff. I hope I never have to undergo myself. Just intense, unfair, unexpected suffering. But you go through it, and you struggle, and you grieve, and you cry, and you get angry at God just like anybody would do, and you get over it, and you love Him anyway, and you hold on to Him. And I think those kind of people get the crown of life, which is kind of like the Congressional Medal of Honor. You know, not everybody gets that. You, most of the, con- what do you, what do you know about most people who win the Congressional Medal of Honor? It's given posthumously in most cases. What does that mean? They've been killed and they, they award it posthumously. So very few people earn that kind of award. Uh, but some do. And you have a list of crowns in the New Testament, but it's not, I don't think it's representative. I think there are many, many, many more. But trust me, you give somebody a glass of water in Jesus' name, he won't forget it. Okay, this passage, let me close this way. This passage is not just for Dale, Homer, David, Ron, and Brad as elders of TBF. It's for every believer because the attitudes and the character described here that we are to aspire to, you should aspire to also, whatever role or function uh, level uh, you're at at TBF. And it certainly would apply to the deacons as well, although they have a different function uh, to fulfill. Uh, I was going to say, boom. You know, these again are fruit of salvation. I don't think anybody here is confused about that. I hope not. We're ta- talking about how you get saved and how saved people ought to live as an effect of salvation. We're saved because of the work of Christ, validated by His resurrection, and our works are the fruit or an effect of that. But it's, it is encouraging when we let our light shine and sometimes people don't notice or don't tell us how great we are. Don't give us the warm fuzzies. You deserve the pastor doesn't pat you on the head enough. Jesus knows why you're doing what you're doing. If you're doing it for the right reasons, you're going to get your rewards. It might even get a crown. So that's pretty fun. But here's a diagnostic test. You can take at your leisure to show you all this stuff applies to all of us. Do I attend and involve myself in TBF because I have to, because my wife drags me to church or Pastor Brad intimidates me. You know, I always come over Monday morning and say, "Where were you yesterday?" No, I don't. I don't do that, but uh, some some people do. Uh, do I attend and involve myself in TBF primarily to get, or do I come to give? You know, hopefully you get some encouragement around here. But there are a lot of people around here you can encourage too, and just by showing up, you do that at a certain level. Do I attend and involve myself in the church as a consumer and a critic, or as a contributor and a servant? And I see a lot of evangelicals in the United States have really embraced a consumer mentality toward local church. And it's antithetical to real discipleship, in my opinion. Uh, one more verse, and I'll close. The final question for all of us, except elders, am I easily led? According to the Washington Post, you're easily led. 
I'm a skeptic about things like that based on my experience. <laughs> but uh, I will tell you, here's what the Word of God says. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, talking about in the local church, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Who's gonna, we're going to be uh, accountable to Christ for producing an environment here where good things can happen spiritually. Let them do this. Let Homer and David and Ron and Dale and Brad be elders and give you some leadership and oversight of the church. Uh, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Because that would be unprofitable for you if you're guilty of stinking thinking. Uh, for me, I would say uh, 29 years into it, I think, uh, with a few weird exceptions, I think this has been a very teachable group and a a group who's here for the right reasons. And I'll brag on you a little bit. You know, TBF isn't for the average cat. I mean, it's a lot easier to go to your typical denominational church if you're if just, and you're a good Christian, you love the Lord, a lot easier to go to something more bells and whistles or maybe that uh, is a little bit uh, plain Jane than some of the stuff we do around here, uh, which is very basic. But uh, I think we're a special breed of cat, and we are cats, so we're not, we don't follow the leaders always all that great, but it's not malicious, I don't think. But, I mean, we've got an all-star group of elders here, and uh, they're not going to brag on themselves at all. But uh, not that they're perfect or have blind spots. We've all got issues. But I think they've got demonstrated integrity. They love the Lord Jesus. They love this church, and they're committed to what it stands for. And, you know, we've got an annual clergy appreciation day now, thanks to Dr. Dobson, and James and I appreciate that. But when's the last time you showed some appreciation to an elder, you know? Uh, not just me. I happen to be a teaching elder, so I'm kind of more visible. But that might be something you might put on your to-do list. You know, occasionally give Homer or, or David or Ron a pat on the head and thank them for serving as, as elders in the church. Okay? So let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us to see a passage like this is designed to instruct all of us, not just the elders of this particular church, but we thank you for uh, these men and their commitment to you and their desire uh, to exert godly influence and leadership and oversight to TBF. And I pray you protect them and empower them um, as we uh, do that function and help all, all of us uh, to uh, find our proper place and, and make our proper uh, contributions to this church, not because it's going to be a mega church or not because you can't do your thing without us, but because in this moment of time in our lives, in this season of our lives, we get a chance to make some contributions and score some points uh, for the kingdom here. And I pray we would do that with joy and, as you say, willingly and givingly and, and servantly here in this passage. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.